exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. You know, participate in a campus-wide election and be successful. Um, you know, Mark Meadows appointed me to the University Student Commission, which was the East Lansing City Commission that uh, I served on uh, while I was in law school. And uh, I've always volunteered and been active in political campaigns of all varieties for all kinds of candidates. And uh, it was just very natural for me to run on my own for this time. Um, now, a lot of people consider like this district to be um, kind of on the liberal side. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the challenges that you saw going into this race? Yeah, I didn't believe that until now. Uh, you know, I, I really thought that uh, this was a district that was competitive, that, uh, you know, both uh, parties had a fair shake here. But mostly you're absolutely true. This is uh, definitely a Democrat district, and uh, I learned that. And that was the biggest challenge for me was to convince people that, uh, despite the fact that, uh, you know, I, I followed the Republican tradition of Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan, that I was still a, a good guy and uh, would be a good representative. And uh, my challenge was to get people that would otherwise vote all Democrat to split their ticket and uh, vote for me for state representative. So uh, that was my biggest challenge, and ultimately it was the, it was the challenge that that, uh, that led to my defeat. But um, the other challenge, of course, is money. You know, being 26 years old, I didn't have a lifelong lifelong uh, background of wealth and, uh, and and wealthy friends to help me fund my campaign. I, I pretty much was uh, was doing everything on volunteer work, uh, heart, and luck in some cases. Um, so those those were the challenges that really stuck out. Okay. Now, um, like I guess during the the campaign itself, like. Um, what were some of like the the more uh, difficult aspects like to campaigning that you ended up facing, um, you know, with funding and with being in a liberal district? Like, um, what were some of those issues? How did they they manifest themselves? Yeah, well, you know, I knocked on every door in the district, Melissa, and uh, you know, I like doing that. But at the same time, when you go to doors and uh, you know, I, I come up to them and I say, hey, I'm Johnny Knowles, I'm running for state representative, uh, can I get a few minutes to tell you what I'm all about? And they chase me off the porch saying, worst president ever, or, uh, you know, get out of Iraq, or, or something like that, uh, you know, as if my election would uh, lead to our continued involvement in Iraq or something. Uh, that, that got frustrating after a while, uh, there's no question. Uh, fundraising is very difficult, because people give money when they think that there's a chance you can win. And uh, at least in the beginning, nobody thought we had a chance, so it was very difficult to raise money. Um, after we won the primary and won it handily, uh, people started to believe a little bit more, and uh, you know that changed things. But um, it, it was it was always a constant challenge raising raising funds from people who had a million candidates coming after them, and and limited money to give. All right. Um, what were some of the more memorable moments at the door? Like you mentioned, you knocked mm-hmm. on every door yeah. in the district. Um, I guess like what were well some of the good moments of going door to door. You know, mostly we did convince a lot of Democrats to uh, to do exactly what I said we had to do, which was split their ticket. And uh, when you when you spend a few minutes with somebody and they validate you at them by saying that you know meeting you in person and listening to what you're all about has convinced me to split your ticket, I think you're going to be the kind of mainstream, uh, principled conservative leader that represents this district effectively. Um, that was always very validating. But no doubt, the most inspiring thing that can happen in politics, and I hope every one of your listeners gets a chance to be a part of this in one way or another in their lifetime, is when you're surrounded by your friends and family and a group of volunteers. Because the heart of a volunteer is the purest thing in the world. They don't get any money for doing it. They get very little recognition. They do give a lot of their time and a lot of their energy. And when somebody believes in you that much to do that for you, it can be one of the most assuring and validating things you can experience. And that's definitely the best memory I take away from it. And um, you mentioned your family. Uh, how did your family participate 
in your your campaign? Yeah, well, uh, mostly, you know, support me financially in the beginning when I had no money. Uh, you know, I went to them and I said, uh, you know, let's forego the birthday present, the Christmas present this year, and, uh, you know, just uh, help me out and get my campaign launched. That was the, the main way, I guess. Um, several members of my family came to the district and helped me go door to door or, uh, you know, help with mailings. Uh, but their prayers and their uh, and their phone calls to me and, and letters of support uh, sustained me throughout the campaign and certainly beyond. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you mentioned, like, the sort of costliness. And, mm-hmm. like, ideally, you know, a campaign should be open to, to everybody to spite money. Like, what makes a campaign so costly? Oh, boy. Melissa, I tell you, uh, and this is something we should probably talk at a different time, is the, the role that money plays in politics. Uh, you know, you, you hear about it all the time, and I can, I can testify personally, it does rule the universe. There's no question. Uh, modern political campaigns are, are really about money. There's no doubt about it. In my initial stages of, um, you know, marketing myself as a candidate, um, yeah, my name has been around. I've done some stuff. So people, you know, weren't saying, you know, who is this guy, or you don't have a chance, or you have a bad record. They're saying, okay, you might be a good candidate. But the question that I wasn't able to overcome is when they said, how much money do you have? And you get that from donors. You get that from people in the party. You get that from people who uh, are considering supporting you and maybe not the other guys, special interest groups, uh, political action committees. And when my answer was, I have nothing, um, it, it, uh, it, it led them to not treat me as a serious candidate. So um, money does control it. Um, the reason for that, I think, is that um, in the closing stages of campaigns, tens of thousands of dollars are spent on radio advertising, TV advertising, uh, mailings, and that candidate that has those resources on hand is going to be in a much stronger position at the end of the campaign. Mm-hmm. My opponent out-fundraised me. He raised $150,000 and I raised 25000 And I was impressed with raising 25000 but, you know, he, he still, you know, beat me by several, uh, six times, so. All right. Well, and you had mentioned before that um, um, Mark Meadows mm-hmm. had appointed you to the USC. Sure. Like, what was the relationship that you had with uh, your opponent mm-hmm. um, before the campaign? That's one of the things I'm proudest of this campaign, Melissa, is that before, during, and after, Mark Meadows and I have had a, a good acquaintanceship, um, and I, I think respect for each other. Um, you know, we've always really enjoyed seeing each other around. We've, we've talked about issues uh, that we agree on. Um, he, uh, he has a wonderful group of friends and, uh, civil supporters in the mm-hmm. city. He has a great wife. And, um, whenever I've seen him around, you know, he's always been very, very respectful to me. And I've tried to extend that same respect to him in a modern political environment that is more about character assassination and, uh, a race to the bottom. Mark and I ran a campaign that was really a, an authentic choice between a very liberal candidate and a, uh, and a pragmatic conservative candidate. And uh, in the end, uh, Mark, with his, with his experience uh, in, in city leadership and, and municipal governance um, and uh, adherence to, to modern liberalism, was able to overcome me. But I don't resent him for that. I, I admire the fact that this man has earned everything he's gotten in his life and, and earned his way to victory in this election, winning a, a challenging primary and keeping that going through the general election. Um, I, I look forward to supporting Mark as state representative. He's my state res- representative. Um, he's someone that I support, and I'm going to be there for him if he needs anything from me. All right. Now, you had mentioned earlier um, when you were campaigning, like somebody actually kind of sho- or like shooed you off no, their lawn, no. um, making comments about <laughs> what was going on with the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think people connect what you know, local state government um, with the war in Iraq um, and with the, the ad- a, a policy of the administration of the executive branch? Yeah. You know, Melissa... Since the election, 
myself and other leaders in the Republican Party have spent so much time trying to dissect this election and see why it turned out so badly for us. I don't, I'm of the viewpoint that national issues affected us um, in, a, in a very negative way, and I got that at the door. I got Republicans, you know, uh, senior citizens who have been voting Republican their whole life telling me that they, they were going to vote straight-ticket Democrat this time to send a message that, uh, you know, the Republican Party had, had drifted from its principles and needed to be punished. And uh, in doing so, what they did was they punished a 26-year-old uh, recently graduated law student who was running for state representative for the sins that were committed in Washington, D.C., and New York City, and uh, the Pentagon, and in places that I'll probably never know and, and certainly never have any influence on. And uh, that, that was troubling to me. You know, I mean, I, I didn't deserve that, and neither did some of the other candidates that suffered that, including Dick DeVos, uh, Mike Bouchard, and other candidates that... Uh, Got wiped up in what uh, what the media likes to call the tsunami of uh, of uh, uh, you know democratic uh, gains in this election, but you know uh, we've had those elections too. We've had those elections in 1994. We've had those elections in uh, 2002, where we had a tsunami on our side, and uh, that's the nature of the game. If you're afraid to lose, this is the wrong business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like what were um, some of the other aspects uh, overall that you learned from this campaign, not just with um, the effects that the federal government had on uh, more local elections? Mm-hmm. What I'm learning is that the Republican Party, if it's going to be viable, if it's going to be strong here in Michigan in the decades to come, it needs to rediscover its founding core principles. Basically, what the Republican Party is supposed to stand for is a strong defense, reduced taxes and, and low regulations, and traditional values. That, that, those three things really encompass what we're all about. And what we've happened, what happened, I think, is that we became comfortable with being in power for so long, both at the national level and the state level, that we started to forget that our purest roots are as an activist, reform-oriented political movement, not a movement that um, guards the gates of power jealously because we don't want the other side to get it. Um, earlier today, I was with Grover Norquist, the celebrated uh, national economics uh, leader, and he made a great point. He said, sometimes it's good to lose. Sometimes you, you learn more from losing than winning. And my prayer for my party, if we're going to have a future here in Michigan, which is increasingly becoming a blue state, is that uh, we need to rediscover those principles and market them effectively to a population that I think needs them. All right. Now, um, if you had have been elected state mm-hmm. representative, what would have been some of the issues that you would have addressed? Mm-hmm. My, the core and compass of all my beliefs is service to the poor. Um, this is a bad time. It's, it's never good to be poor, but it's worse than ever to be poor in the current environment in Michigan. You can't find uh, work as easily as you once could. Uh, we're going into the winter months, and uh, it gets cold out there real quick. Um Whenever there's an economic downturn like we're experiencing in Michigan, it's the poor that suffer the most. The first things I would have done is is, is drive welfare reform. Uh, we're one of the few states that allows a, a person to be on welfare forever. Um, there's no limits on it. Um, you know, if, if you go on welfare, you could be on it you know, literally for decades. Um, I, I would ask for a reasonable limit, be it four years or five years. G- give, give people uh, some kind of incentive to, to develop skills and get back in the workforce and become self-sufficient. Uh, we're one of the few states that doesn't require mandatory drug tests to be on welfare. We're not helping our, our, our welfare recipients if they, uh, if they are addicted to heroin, and we don't know it. And uh, they're receiving government assistance, yet they're addicted to uh, harmful drugs um, or, or, or abusing alcohol. So uh, we need to co- cooperate more with uh, nonprofit organizations, especially those that have a religious orientation, because those have proven throughout history to be the most effective servants of the poor. So uh, that would have been kind of uh, my focus, I think, uh, 
I, I, I oppose tax increases and fee increases of all kinds, so uh, that's kind of representative of the, the district would have had. Um, I also think Michigan needs to be better prepared to defend itself from terrorist strike. We have the longest, largest border with an international country of any of the contiguous states, and um, I think we need to recognize that. Michigan's border is pretty porous, and we need to uh, be aware that there's, there's people in the world that, that wish to harm us and, and to secure our borders and uh, protect ourselves from attack. Right. Now, um, I had a question actually about um, taxes because yeah. the SBT is about mm-hmm. to expire in the mm-hmm. next uh, month or so, right? That's correct. Um, would you have seen, um, you know, as a representative, would you have seen a replacement for that mm-hmm. tax or what would you have done in that case? Well, there has to be. And uh, nobody nobody opposes that. I mean, where we're at right now is we know there's going to be a new business tax. I mean, the business community understands they have to pay their share. The problem with the old SBT was that it was a tax and that your business could not even open its doors, could lose money, not make any money, but still have to pay the SBT. Um, it was a job killer. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it hurt small businesses and medium-sized businesses particularly. So uh, the business community understands that there's you know, going to have to be a replacement tax. We, we support a business tax that's based on profits. Uh, it resembles more of a corporate income tax, if you will. Uh, where you, you pay a percentage of what you earn, and uh, that's more predictable, makes it easier to budget, uh, it helps businesses grow. But I think that you need to couple it with spending cuts if we're really going to get up to that point where we're making up the revenue we lost. Uh, there's still a lot of pork in the Michigan budget, there's still a lot of um, excessive spending that can be reined in, uh, and my, my prayer is that legislators in the next session will look for those areas to cut costs so that the new business tax will not be so oppressive that it continues to uh, to uh, burden and slow the growth of business in Michigan. Right now, um, what areas do you think uh, needed to be cut? Well, you know, Melissa, we spend uh, a lot of money on things we probably shouldn't. Uh, Michigan has a excessively large arts and culture uh, budget, and uh, now nobody's against arts and culture, especially me. I, I enjoy that as much as anyone. But I know that the greatest uh, the greatest uh, patron of the arts and, and entertainment are our private industries. There's no, there's no successful art galleries or theaters or, uh, or, or entertainment venues that are, that are subsidized by, by, by the government. I, I, think, I don't think that's a role the government was meant to play. When the, when the founders drafted the Constitution, I, I doubt that they foresaw the, the government sponsoring uh, an art gallery. I don't think that was, that was ever part of their vision. So we have a large budget there, and I think that cuts need to be made. We need to be more uh, responsible in how we spend money there. Um, there's ideas for introducing competition into, uh, into, uh, teacher health benefits. Uh, right now, uh, right now it's, it's pretty much, they have one plan. You know, if we, if we allowed teachers to choose from a variety of options with their health care, uh, the, the competition would drive that price lower and allow the, the state to save a, a, a great deal of money. Um, there's opportunities to sell some state land that, uh, right now is not generating uh, property tax revenue. Um, I think that land should be sold uh, to, uh, to, you know, uh, the private sector. Um, but, but the best way to, to, to raise funds and to balance the budget is to attract businesses that make jobs because that uh, generates income tax revenue, it, uh, it generates sales tax revenue, and ultimately attracts uh, the best and brightest people to Michigan. Right. Now, um, what are your future plans um, politically? Sure. Well, I've graduated from law school, and uh, I've taken a job as chief of staff to uh, Representative Kevin Green, who's uh, a leader in the Republican caucus from the city of Wyoming, which is Grand Rapids' largest suburb. Uh, Representative Green was just elected the uh, uh, caucus whip in our in our uh, caucus, so he's he's in leadership. He's uh, going to be uh, someone who drives policy. Melissa, the most exciting thing about this this opportunity for me is that Kevin and I are so similar on issues and even in personality that I really think that a lot of things that I would have done had I been elected. 
um, I'm going to be able to uh, convince Kevin or a good idea and drive through his office. So I'm, I'm going to be around, uh, certainly around the, uh, the scene, if you will, and uh, hopefully through Kevin be able to uh, implement a lot of the ideas that I would have done had I been elected. All right. Now, are you looking to, you know, ever run again? Yeah, I think so. I, uh, I really enjoyed running, um, and uh, I think in a different place and in a different time, the results would have been much better. Nobody ever questioned this campaign was one of integrity and, uh, and positive culture and hard work, and uh, I think if we could duplicate that somewhere else in a, in a different year, um, I, I think that uh, I'll have the opportunity to serve the people of Michigan in the legislature. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much, Johnny, for coming on. We do appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Melissa. All right, and I wish you the best of luck Likewise. in your political endeavors. Thank you. So, coming up next on uh, Friday Night Insight, we've got uh, Steve Schramm of Michigan Public Media being interviewed by our own Russ White here on your Exposure 88.9 FM. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a gang member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, the Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio from the campus of MSU, 89FM The Impact, and Spartan Podcast at SpartanPodcast.com. MSU Today is the program. As I mentioned, I'm Russ White, and we're happy to have really one of the fathers of Spartan Podcast and a passionate Green and White alum with us, Steve Schramm. Steve, welcome to MSU Today. Russ, thanks very much. It's great to be here today. And it's nice to be using the beautiful studios of your new home, Michigan Radio, which is a part of Michigan Public Media. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, what Michigan Public Media is. Michigan Public Media is the uh, umbrella name for the organizations that represent Michigan Radio, which is uh, your NPR news and talk station at 91.7 out of Ann Arbor, 91.1 in Flint, and 104.1 in Grand Rapids. We also have Michigan Television, the PBS station on Channel 28 out of uh, Flint, and also we have uh, two other smaller units, uh, Michigan Productions, which is our on-campus uh, video production unit, which captures lectures and special presentations. And we have a 24-7 cable channel called Michigan Channel, which is distributed by Comcast in Washtenaw County. Well, and talk a little bit about uh, that difference between a public radio setting and a commercial radio setting, as you talked about having been in both. Are there major differences, or is a lot of it the same thing? Well, I think you use the same basic set of uh, operating ideas from a business standpoint. Uh, there are certain things that have to happen from the revenue and expense side, which are common to any business, whether it be broadcasting or any other entity. But I think the things that are certainly unique in public uh, broadcasting and public radio is uh, certainly the the um, mission of service, of public service. 
And that, in, in this station particularly, comes through with our news and information services, both the NPR offerings that we have nationally and uh, also our, our dedication to our news effort as well. We have a, a local news uh, staff of five uh, individuals uh, for Michigan Radio, and, and we're offering comprehensive, thoughtful uh, analysis of news, not just quick uh, 10 and 15-second sound bites. And I think that is, uh, as, as a total offering, uh, that is the type of attraction that uh, our, our listeners have found very appealing over the course of time. So I think that's a key difference. You know, commercial radio, unless you're an all-news station, doesn't really regard or treat news information very seriously or at all with resources very much anymore. And if they do, it's only on a very surface level because that's, that's what it has come down to in the age of consolidation. I think also that um, we have to manage uh, our business with a lot of different constituencies here. We have the constituency of being a university licensee. We have the uh, importance of making sure that uh, not only are we attracting uh, listeners to our product by offering a, a good product that's compelling and uh, one that's unique, but we also want to be able to interest those listeners in becoming members of our station, which offer the financial support and and in our operation and many other public radio operations across the country and public television as well. Membership represents over 50% of the entire entire income that you're working with. So you have those uh, constituencies. And I think in, in public broadcasting, radio and television, the listenership and the viewership takes a much more uh, serious uh, ownership of what you do and what what their interest is in what you do. So you get very specific feedback from listeners if you've said something or if you've put a news item on the air which they think is not uh, is not accurate or it goes against uh, the, the kilter of, of some type of uh, fair balance uh, coverage. So it is an interesting and passionate audience. And the way that you measure the passion, quite honestly, is not only how many uh, people you're able to serve on a uh, documented basis, but how many of those individuals elect to become further engaged by becoming members, by, by becoming financially interested in the station. So as director of Michigan Public Media, and now you are director, not interim director, you're yes. here for the long haul. What what are some of the challenges or some of the projects you're working on in the next several months or the foreseeable future? Well, we, we've uh, we've been, there's some projects that were already in progress when I arrived here. Uh, the largest, uh, you know, physical project we have going on is the expansion of our signal on uh, in Grand Rapids on the west coast of Michigan. And we have been, the last couple of years, uh, building a brand new uh, tower with uh, new transmission, uh, improved transmission capabilities in terms of uh, the coverage area. And we'll also launch the uh, debut of uh, HD radio for us on the west coast of Michigan. So we're exp- we're going through our final sets of uh, testing and uh, and uh, paperwork submissions to the FCC. Uh, very soon that will be done, and we will basically have uh, increased our power in that area fourfold. So we expect to be able to give a much more significant signal and coverage not only to our core Grand Rapids area, but even expanded areas as well. So I think that's a significant project for us from a coverage standpoint. From a product standpoint, we're always looking to um, examine the program lineup that we have now, whether they are local programs or programs from NPR or American uh, public media. Wherever our uh, program sources are, we're always looking at the mix and match of what makes the most sense in terms of uh, listener appeal. And I think uh, we have a new news director, Jerome Vaughn, who came to us from WDET 
about two months ago. And uh, Jerome, I think, will bring uh, additional energy and, and vigor to how we cover news in our area. We're very fortunate to have a Grand Rapids-based news reporter. We have a primary uh, Detroit market news reporter as well. And then we have our, uh, the rest of our staff, which is assignable to whatever geography where there might be breaking news, whether that be in Flint, where we have another uh, signal, of course, or Lansing for state capital coverage, or anywhere else in southeast or southern lower Michigan. Because with the with the benefit of three signals, both Grand Rapids and Flint and Ann Arbor, we do really consider ourselves the NPR news and talk station for Southern Lower Michigan. Steve, this is kind of a big question, but let's see where it goes. What is the state of, I guess, terrestrial broadcasting, we'll call it, because as you and I were saying off the air— right. If we had been talking three or four years ago, the word iPod probably would not have even come up, and it's arguably now the biggest threat to terrestrial radio. Satellite radio is very much, I, I guess, not viable yet for certain. It could right. make it. It could not make it. That's very much up in the air. But would sure. you just, just talk about where we are and where we're going? Well, I, I have a, a lot of different personal opinions about the satellite radio issue. I think that... Um, Without question, there are some users of satellite radio to find it to be very convenient because there's a wide variety of choices available, even inside of specific music genres, for example. There might be four or five different jazz channels, depending on your uh, your liking. The same is true for classical and other types of more contemporary music. So I think satellite radio probably does give a wide variety of listenership uh, a lot of choices to, to work with, which is fine. I think that... Um, it has also opened up the horizon on the kinds of different talk radio that is available, which is distributed in bits and pieces on terrestrial stations, but on satellite you might have an entire dedicated channel of one particular type of talk. So satellite has uh, brought those types of diversities. I think from a terrestrial broadcaster standpoint, and having been a terrestrial broadcaster all of my career, I guess I take uh, some exception to the fact that the FCC licensed satellite broadcasters effectively with 100 channels per market of ability to program to a market. And they also have a uh, creative loophole where they can, and they do in, in some of the larger markets, do uh, traffic and weather reports. So they've, in effect, uh, given two companies 100 channels of licenses in each market in the United States. And to me, that's uh, I don't know if that's in the best interest of, of the public overall. I think also that um, terrestrial broadcasters are certainly more challenged by the fact there's more competition out there. So we have to do things differently and, and continue to be uh, reinventing our opportunity. And the way that that has been forwarded in our industry on the terrestrial side is with the, de with the debut of HD, high-definition radio. And uh, that is still yet to catch on because uh, auto manufacturers haven't found uh, a, a compelling reason yet to uh, accelerate the installation of HD radios in all their automobiles. It's starting to come in in higher-end uh, brands such as uh, BMWs and what have you. But you've got to recognize that most automotive manufacturers have an alliance either with XM, as General Motors does, or Sirius, as Ford and Chrysler happen to. And they do have economic benefit in terms of being able to uh, benefit from the subscription price that someone pays for satellite radio. So they're slower to get excited about HD radio because there isn't a financial model for them there. So even though HD radio is certainly going to be a superior product from a technical standpoint, and I think from my own personal listening, 
that HD radio, if you were driving in your car and you have a, a decent uh, audio system in your car, and not necessarily high-end, but a decent one, you're going to find the clarity and the definition of HD radio to be far superior to satellite. Satellite is a distribution system. It doesn't necessarily mean it is the highest end quality. To put 100 signals on one beam of satellite transmission, they have to squash it quite a bit in terms of audio range. So I think HD radio, once it has a chance to get out there and establish itself, if someone really appreciates the high-end value of the clarity of the signal, it, it will prove itself. One of the things that I see on the horizon that's a challenge for satellite radio and certainly will be a challenge as as the media landscape continues to fractionalize is when uh, Wi-Fi becomes more apparent in cars and you can listen to wireless Internet in your car, in which case anybody who has a URL and is streaming will be able to be listened to from around the world. And that will put a whole new layer of competition and diversity and, and different voices into mix on what your media habit's going to be. But I think at the end of the day, Russ, you know, there's only so much time you can spend with all these media sources. You will still determine in your own personal habit maybe, you know, two, three, perhaps four places where you're going to spend your media time. And that probably won't change dramatically because you really can't you know, you'll have a loyalty to two or three of these things, and that's where your interest will lie. It will always give you the option of now having many more alternate choices should you be tired of your core three or four. That's, I think, the biggest difference that I see in the future. Elaborate just a little bit more on HD radio and what it is, because I think a lot of American consumers are just or consumers are just now getting up with what HD TV is. Right. There are some differences, right? Like for one, I don't think HD radio is ever going to be required like the TV is, right, but just talk mandated. about what it is a little bit and why consumers should get excited. Well, it's high-definition radio, just like you have high-definition def television. The difference is, as you mentioned, is the FCC has mandated that all television stations will convert to digital transmission uh, by uh, February of 2009. So uh, your analog TV set will either have to get an adapter box or you'll be buying a new television by February of 2009. And you will have improved uh, you know, technical quality of the, of the picture and the transmission will be in its purest digital state from the time that it is generated inside the TV studio all the way through its passes through the transmitter out onto the air. So uh, digital television is already on its way in terms of mandate. That's why you're seeing all the retail stores uh, offer you all these great deals, especially around big sporting events. They're trying to get as many sets circulated into the population ahead of the February 09 uh, cutoff so there isn't a great culture shock. But you watch in the next year or so, there'll even be more and more of that as that deadline is coming true. On, on the radio side, there isn't a mandate that everyone has to uh, convert radios to digital. Um, whether that will come about or not, I haven't tracked enough of the legislation to see whether or not that's even being offered up in the near term. I think that uh, HD radio is um, is an advantage to the to the effect as we talked about earlier. It's it's going to give you some additional clarity from the main channel that you normally listen to. So if you listen to Michigan Radio at 91.7, we have an HD signal as well. And if you listen to that, you'll notice some some distinct differences that make it even uh, more clear to you or a bit better stereo or things of that nature. As far as uh, HD's potential, HD, as it gets uh, more circulated with more sophisticated receivers, allows a single station to have two, possibly three streams 
of program content. So it could be the programming you've always known from 91.7, and we could have two alternate programs, up to two alternate programs. At least right now, that's the way the technology seems to be playing out. And some stations in the larger markets are already doing that, offering an alternate view of their kind of programming, either a... uh, 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 as they say, a, a cousin version of the format that they do, or they op- they operate with a format that's entirely different just because th- that is a need in the marketplace. So I think HD in its uh, embryonic stage is trying to emulate some of the satellite radio um, uh, variety of programming model. And it's going to be a while before that gets settled in because until it finds its way into the dashboard, it really won't have that uniform acceptance and awareness that everybody will clamor to have. Uh, I, I must have an HD radio. Right now, there's so much focus on satellite radio. You see all the ads about HowardStern.com and, and, and the fact that you can listen to him for free for a, a trial coming up on Sirius. Uh, that's where the money is being spent. But let's remember right now the, the satellite radio model is not working financially. I was going to say, do you think they will – aren't there only maybe 15 million subscribers between the two? Right. Do you think they'll even make it? I realize it's just a guess, but that's certainly up in the air. We it can, is. It is. They may I, not even be around. XM, I think, has you know seven, seven and a half or eight right now, eight million subscribers because I was in D.C. a couple weeks ago, and they have a big banner on the side of their building, now seven million subscribers. But they have a lot of churn. They have people that get new cars where satellite is rolled into the deal for the first uh, 12 months of their lease. And then uh, because that's basically a 12-month free sampler, and then they don't have uh, renewals. So they have a lot of churn. They're having to try to introduce into the market as many possible devices where you can hear their radio. And that's that's very wise. But, you know, I don't know if everybody wants to continue to pay another tier, another layer of dollars for their entertainment, uh, you know, their entertainment use every month. Let's face it, at home you've got cell phone bills. Maybe you still have a landline bill. You certainly most likely have a cable bill. You probably have a high-speed bill. And uh, the question is, do you want to spend another 7 to $10 or $11 a month on a satellite radio bill? How many hours a day are you really using it? Especially if these jacks are coming where your iPod is going to be easily plugged into cars. Yes, so. yes, yes. So there's, there's so many ways that uh, the media landscape is being diversified in terms of delivery systems. And I guess the question is, you start putting a value, as you said, whether I'll take the time and just put my favorite music on an iPod and carry it with me wherever I go, or do I want to use the occasional use of the satellite radio system, uh, but I'm paying uh, a premium for it, or frankly, do I still find great value in my terrestrial radio station, which uh, is, is, uh, is answering a lot of needs on a local front, that you don't get from a music player, which is what an iPod is, and you really don't get it from satellite radio because those are all national services. They're not going to tell you likely uh, what what your weather is like. They're not going to tell you what your local news is about if that's important to you. They may not have the the scores for the teams that you might be following locally. And so all that all that different local flavor, the things that make you unique to your community, those are lost on those national services or music players. Steve Schramm, since we're on Spartan Podcast and Impact Radio at MSU, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to reflect a little bit, being a Spartan alum as you are, back to your days of you know, WMSN and Dr. Yeah. Steve Edwards and <laughs> Keener, and just talk a little bit about your formative years and how it helped you get where you are. I will tell you, I um, I knew I was going to Michigan State from the time I was a sophomore in high school. 
And in my junior year, I, I attended Catholic Central in Detroit for high school. And in my junior year, we took a bus trip. We were going to the various universities, and I, I signed up for the Michigan State tour. And uh, I, uh, I knew uh, academically that there was a program there that I would enjoy, the television and radio major. Actually, I started out as a political science major. Uh, the, the thought was, okay, I'm going to go be a lawyer. But uh, after about uh, three or four classes of the isms, you know, communism, socialism, whatever, it, it didn't appeal to me uh, over the long haul. And I went to what was my real passion from the outset. So I became a television radio major. From the time I uh, decided I was going to go to Michigan State, I, I took a tour in that high school year to, uh, to Michigan State Campus Radio, which was WMSN, in the student services building in the lower level, of the garden level of the building. And the gentleman who gave me the tour... Uh, was was very nice. He was a student, and uh, at the end, he said, um, "So, what do you think? You going to come here to Michigan State?" And I said, "Yes." And I said, "And someday, I'm going to run this place." And 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 I I didn't realize that those words uh, would uh, ring so true. But the person who gave me the tour was a, a gentleman by the name of Dave Logan, who has become uh, over the decades a, a professional friend of mine. Dave, actually, interestingly enough, was the first. Uh, vice president programmer of XM Satellite Radio when it decided to debut. But Dave had a very illustrious career and still does uh, in, in broadcast and terrestrial radio as well. So Dave, and I talked to him recently, I said, you realize that that visit that day inspired me to come into uh, Michigan State Campus Radio. And from there, when I uh, got my uh, dorm assignment at Bailey Hall in Brody Complex, I put my bags down. I, I don't think I was in the dorm 20 minutes. I put my bags down and went over to WBRS in Ma Brody and said, how do I sign up? And uh, certainly that started. So my first couple of years were at Brody Radio, and I became the uh, manager of McDonald at WMCD. And then my senior year, I became the station manager of WMSN. And uh, all that time, I had the good fortune of working in commercial radio in Lansing at the same time. I worked uh, primarily at WVIC, and as as you mentioned, became uh, Dr. Steve Edwards, the good doc of rock from 6 to 10 at night. <laughs> so I, my, Michigan State, uh, my Michigan State heritage and, and connection means uh, very much to me. Uh, the, the, um, the closest friends I have in life are from my years at Michigan State. And the camaraderie and the fraternity that campus radio allowed me as an individual on campus allowed me to find a place for, for Steve Schramm at Michigan State because we recognize, we hear this all the time, boy, Michigan State is a very big campus. It's easy to get lost or you may not know what areas to navigate. And I've always uh, said this in any of the career talks I've done. You need to find something. You need to find an organization. You need to find some kind of volunteer effort. You need to find some type of other than an academic interest, you need to find something to do at Michigan State to become wired and to really appreciate the value of the university and all of its all the offerings that it has. And for me, that was campus radio. That was my fraternity, if you will. And those people who uh, were with me in that grouping uh, are still with me today. They are, as I said, the best friends that I have. And even though we aren't even in the same state for the most part, we do come together to celebrate the years that we enjoyed there. And they are the most uh, meaningful years of our life in terms of how they directed our career. And yet, as we were talking off the air, too, you're about as green and white as I know, but now working here at the University of Michigan for Michigan Radio, there, a, a lot of that competition is left 
in Breslin and Chrysler yes. and the big house in Spartan Stadium, right? Other than that, yes. it's much more of a, a collaborative union you're and it's, finding. And it's very refreshing, yeah. honestly. I, I really enjoy working for University of Michigan, I would tell you that. And I, as you said, I'm as Spartan as they come. My, I, my, my two sons are Michigan State graduates. My wife and I are state graduates. Our dog's name is Sparty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much more yeah. I can do. Um, so, but I, as I've told people, I said, you know, uh, I'm very, I'm very proud to be working for this university as well. And there is not, there, there is a wonderful collaboration that does exist, certainly on the uh, academic unit basis. And I think there is regard and respect for among each u- university for uh, what they do and and what they seem to excel at. And I will tell you here at at Michigan Radio, uh, Michigan State University is our largest client. And and we we thank them for that. That includes the the Broad College of Business. That includes uh, Wharton Center, and some occasional academic units which are promoting some of their events because of the type of coverage that and listenership that we have. For example, on the west side of the state, where Michigan State has a lot of partisans, uh, that that messaging that we can provide with our service uh, is of great value to them. Steve, anything I've left out or just some final thoughts on sort of the state of broadcasting and where we're going? Well, I I think that uh, broadcasting is an interesting time because podcasts alone, your podcast, which is, is, you know, the Spartan podcast, which is now heard around the world. And it is amazing that these search engines, you know, uh, people will come across the different uh, versions of the Spartan podcast that have been done. And and the amount of downloads that have occurred is, is fascinating. So I, I think that the kind of uh, wonderful positive notoriety that's been built from a podcasting environment is a real positive. It has allowed, in my view, what has been a um, sty- – I guess there, there hasn't been as much growth in what we think are people who could be future broadcasters or communicators, electronic communicators. I think podcasting is reopening that door, and it's allowing uh, – you know, individuals and programs like yours, as well as others that you hear on podcasts to say, well, there are, there is talent that's still out there and we can still develop them to a larger audience than just the podcast audience if we know where to find them and and to develop those talents. So I, I think I'm excited about the fact that podcasting does exist and I don't see it as a real threat terrestrial broadcasting. I see it as a compliment and as a niche uh, way to communicate. I, I think that terrestrial broadcasting will, um, will we'll still be here and will always be here. It's a vital service. And for those who are not necessarily on the, on the, on the bleeding edge of uh, technology adaptation or, frankly, are, are comfortable with the traditional service that terrestrial broadcasting has supplied and still continues to supply in a quality way, that this will still be a useful resource, particularly public radio. I think public radio as a format nationally is now the number four format in the country. This is Arbitron's uh, information that was released not too long ago. And uh, beginning this fall in the survey that we are currently in, uh, for the first time when the survey results come out in the first quarter of next year, public radio stations will actually be listed by call letters along with their commercial peers, and that has never occurred before. Hmm. So I think people will begin to see from the media side the value of public radio, and I think it's uh, it's absolutely genuine. It's a it's a, a national treasure in so many ways. At wherever there is a public broadcasting station, both radio and television, and I'm proud to be part of it. Steve, thanks so much for visiting with us. Thank you, Russ. It's been a pleasure. Steve Schram is director of Michigan Public Media here at the University of Michigan, and this has been MSU Today. I'm Russ White on Impact Radio from the campus of MSU WDBM East Lansing and Spartan Podcast. 
at SpartanPodcast.com. For a lot more of the things that Steve and his colleagues work on, MichiganRadio.org is where you can go to find that out. And for more MSU Today, you can visit us at MSUToday.com. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that? Smoking. Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. When you get up in the morning and turn on the radio, you don't want to hear those other guys talking on your way to work, do you? You don't want to hear talking. You want to hear music. So here at The Impact, we are making you a promise. We're calling it the More Music Mornings 89-Second Pledge. We, The Impact, pledge that every weekday morning from 8 to 10 a.m., we will shut up and play music. We pledge that we won't talk for more than 89 seconds at a time, meaning more music all morning long. We pledge that every caller who requests a song between 8 and 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, will be entered to win a great Impact prize. And we pledge that in return for your listening to us, we will listen to you and play more music that you want to hear. So tune into the impact for more music mornings. Let us know what to play, and maybe you could win some cool stuff. Only here on 88.9 The Impact. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Your Friday night insight. We have a lovely person in the studio right now. Mike Hogan is joining us for the next eight minutes or so um, because we have a very important topic to talk about. And if you have any insight, feel free to check us out online. Our screen name is uh, Impact 89FM. So we'd love to hear from you. So, Mike, what are we going to be talking about tonight? Well, today, December 1st, is World AIDS Day. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's been held um, for the past couple of years. But the, the point is as always, to talk about AIDS and to talk about prevention and basically to get knowledge out there. All right. Why do you think it's important that we, we bring this subject up? Well, it's something that's still affecting a lot of people today. Um, it's pretty. It's not rampant, I guess, in the U.S., but it's a growing concern. There's 40 million people living around the world with HIV, um, but 900,000 here in the U.S., and estimates say that over half a million people have died in the U.S. of AIDS. Yeah. And uh, actually, the first case of AIDS was diagnosed in uh, 1981. So it's pretty much 25 years um, after like AIDS was first recognized in the U.S. Yes. Um, And AIDS actually stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome because it's a condition that directly attacks um, the immune system, causes it to shut down. Um, And this is caused by HIV, which is the human immunodeficiency virus. And so AIDS, for the most part, for the first couple of years in the 80s, was kind of, you know, largely ignored um, up until about, like, 1985 um, when Rock Hudson died. Um, He was diagnosed with AIDS in uh, August of 1985. And for anybody out there who know who Rock Hudson is, like, a classic uh, movie star from the 50s and 60s. You know, he's kind of considered to be a very strong um, male. And so 
people, when they saw him at that press conference, when he came out um, and said that he had AIDS, you know, he was so frail. Like, the people realized how it affected um, individuals, how much, like, it it just wore on people's bodies. Right. And something that was that was kind of tragic was at first, like in the 1980s, a lot of people considered um, AIDS to be something that only affected gay men. And that sort of myth actually has sort of prevailed even today, whereas like a lot of gay men are res- uh, restricted from actually giving blood because of that fear of uh, spreading AIDS. Right. Well, that's a rule with the Red Cross. Um, they actually have one of their questions is, have you had sex with another man? In the last, um, I can't remember how many years it is. I think it's but, 10 years. Yeah. And it's, it's um, I mean, that's just the Red Cross, though. There's other blood, blood donation organizations where they don't ask that question because it's it's not considered to be an issue so much with, with um, homosexuals anymore. But as far as, like, current statistics, uh, 70% of the people in the U.S. that have AIDS are men, but they're still at 30% who are women, and um, the statistics I'm looking at that I got from avert.org, which is an AIDS um, help organization, says that 63% of these women who have, who have AIDS were exposed through heterosexual contact. So there's many things to talk about as far as prevention, you know, mainly safe sex, but also clean, clean uh, needle use for drug users. Yeah, because that's one of the things that people... Um, don't realize is that AIDS, um, especially like when it, it first started to become a, an epidemic, doesn't just occur through um, like intimate contact. Let's right. you know, like use a little friendly term. Um, you know, there was the issue of people using unclean needles and it being spread that way as well. And even at first, um, blood transfusions before people realized that AIDS was spread through the blood as well. Right. Um, like there were people who had been infected by having a blood transfusion. But that, you know, we're a long ways away from that. That was a, an issue in the, the 80s more so with the blood transfusions than it is now. Right. So. Well, it has been a, a huge issue in the U.S. It's also an, a, an issue across the world, uh, including some third world countries where, you know, it, safe sex isn't isn't looked highly upon in some countries. And um, there's problems with, with drug use and, you know, bl- bloodborne illnesses and all that. And it's it's not just... A U.S. issue. It's a it's a world. It's a global issue, which is why obviously World AIDS Day. We're not only looking at at our own local areas, but also across the entire planet. Yeah, because like this is a pandemic, and it's um you know it's negatively affected um, many developing countries, especially you know in Africa. Um, and the sad part is um, it affects people economically as well because the the thing about AIDS is that it um, gets at the population that is working, like the the young men and women who are in the workforce. And so when you strip a country of that demographic, of that group of people, it's like you all you kind of have left are children and senior citizens. So, of course, like the economy is going to suffer. And so it you know, it negatively affects um, uh, just developing countries. But there, you know, there are several countries that have been working towards um, uh, informing, like, their citizens about it. Because, like, education is always key when it comes to this, like, educating yourself um, and finding out, like, how you can protect yourself, like, uh, be it through uh, safe sex by using condoms or um, even through abstinence, if, if that's something. But, it, you know, it is always important, too, to get tested because that's a, another form of education is knowing what state your body's in right now. Right. And there are areas or there's uh, clinics in the local area where people can get tested 
if they if they want to find out that information about themselves. This year's theme for World AIDS Day is accountability. And it's it's stressing making sure that you get tested and making sure that you take care of yourself, not only yourself, but other people. Um, if you're interested, uh, Olin Health Center has an HIV program that focuses on education, testing, and counseling. You can check that out at olin.msu.edu. Mm-hmm. And you can also uh, set up uh, or find out more information um, for HIV testing, um, as well as other uh, STIs, um, by calling 517 353 Five five four six, and you know they do test for um, other STIs besides HIV, including you know gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. I mean, these are things that we often right. joke about, but we, you know, especially being college students, um, it's something that we really need to be taking seriously. Yeah. So um, there's you know other opportunities besides Olin, but Olin's kind of nice because it's right on campus for people. So. Right. Well, in fact, today for World AIDS Day, if you go to Google.com, there's a red ribbon on the in the center of the page. If you're interested in more information or about testing options, you can go there and check that out. Click on that red ribbon, you can get more information. Um, also, and if you're in the local area, you can you can go to olin.msu.edu and get some phone numbers and, and information on how to get tested. But the important thing is to actually get tested. Yeah, and the interesting thing, too, is like when people think of testing, they think of like drawing blood. But actually, HIV testing um, is painless because um, they just swab the, the inside of your mouth. Um, so it, it's relatively, well, <laughs> relatively painless, hopefully, you know, as long as people aren't sensitive and inside the, their mouths, um, you know, it, relatively painless um, as far as like actually getting the testing done. And it really, if you are um, sexually active, it's probably the best way to protect you and your partner by just knowing, like, um, if you are negative, if you are positive, because I mean, you know, not knowing in, a, in itself is a bit of a crime because you can hurt your partner that way. Right. There's no harm in getting tested. Exactly. So, um, well, we hope everybody, you know, makes some some good choices out there. And uh, just, again, uh, for the number to contact Olin Health Center for HIV testing, that's 517-353-5546. So I want to thank you, Mike, for coming on. Thank you, Melissa. Your statistics were very handy and helpful. (laughs) We do appreciate it. All right, and that's all that we've got for Friday Night Insight tonight. Um, Coming up next, we've got Flashback here on your Exposure, 88.9 FM. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact. (laughs) We got it.